You know, I love the I love the part of that video where the kid says they brought gold Frankenstein and and uh, myrrh. Did you notice that she's holding a, a stuffed animal Frankenstein? Uh, because I, I thought the same thing when I was a kid. There's so many words and ideas uh, that these kids are expressing in that video that I've thought about. Like, why is Jesus getting gold frankincense and myrrh and not diapers and uh, and milk and some of that stuff? And yet, that's exactly what he ends up finding himself getting. Um, uh, it's a totally illogical plan that God had when he sent his son to become a baby, to become a human. It's definitely not the plan that I would have chosen or the way that I would have scripted it. And yet that's, I think, what makes it so beautiful and so appealing uh, is that God does the thing that makes no sense. And God becomes the least because we live in a world where everyone's trying to be the greatest and the most powerful and climb your way to the top. And here comes God on the scene becoming a human and becoming the least, becoming uh, totally uh, in, in a sense, totally forgettable, um, so that you have to search for him, and you have to, you kind of have to find him, uh, or find that he's searching for us. The God who loves the least becomes the least to save the least. That's such a cool idea. The God who loves the least people on the earth, the least likely, becomes the least to save the least. So, uh, Merry Christmas. In nine days, we will celebrate Christmas. I love living in Charlestown. People in Charlestown get offended if you try to take Christmas out of this season, uh, my neighbors are like, man, don't you invite me to a holiday party. Don't you wish me a happy holidays. It's Christmas, by goodness. We're going to celebrate baby Jesus. I love living in this neighborhood for that reason. Don't put me in a neighborhood where you can't say Merry Christmas or you have to wish 18 other holidays at this time of year. I love living in Charlestown, so I tell you Merry Christmas. This place is great. Um, in nine days, we will celebrate the God of the universe becoming a baby, fully God fully human. So today we're going to read the Christmas story as told in Luke 2, often the most familiar Christmas story thanks to its beauty and thanks to the fact that Linus shares the gospel when he reads the Christmas story. Probably the most shocking thing in our culture today is the fact that every year CBS, I believe it's CBS, shows the Christmas story and Linus uh, in that Charlie Brown Christmas special gets up and reads what I'm going to read right now. So Luke 2, here we go. Starting in verse 1, we're going to read the first 20 verses. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. And so, just real quick, uh, here's your nerdist uh, Geography lesson, if you will. Joseph's people are from southern Israel. Imagine just south of modern-day Jerusalem. But he is living because if you were here last week, we talked about how his family lived as refugees in Egypt until King Herod died. And then when they came back just to lay low and protect baby Jesus, they settled in what's called the Galilee, which is in northern Israel. And so they're living in a little town called Nazareth, and a census is ordered. The, the Caesar was wanting to have a census to record everyone in the empire, and so they have to go south. Uh, down to the city where they're from, to the city of David, the city of Bethlehem, because he's of the house and lineage of David. Verse 5, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed. His, um, they're not fully married, but they're engaged, and they've never been together as a couple. And it says, and she was with child. We saw that explanation of how she became pregnant supernaturally a couple of weeks ago from Luke 1. 
Verse 6, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. I love that word glory. In the Old Testament, in the Jewish scriptures, that word literally means heavy. It means just like the, just the, the fat, heavy weight of all God is and all God has done. The, the glory, the weightiness, the power, the beauty, the majesty of God shines all around them. And we've said, I think, every week, uh, look at what the angel says in verse 10. And the angel of the Lord said to them, fear not, because anytime the glory of the Lord would show up in someone's life, your first response was always fear in the Bible, always fear. And so if somebody's like, yeah, man, I hung out with Jesus this morning. We had lucky charms together, high five, fist bumped. That person did not have breakfast with Jesus because the response when God shows up in our life is awe and wonder and a sense of, whew, God is holy and big and majestic and I am not. And these common shepherds on this night are experiencing the glory of God. And here's an angel and he says, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. I bring you uh, evangelism. I bring you great news. The word evangelism, giving the good news, giving the gospel comes from this idea. I'm bringing, I'm evangelizing you. I'm coming to you with great news for unto you is born this day. Oh, he says, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, the heavenly army, not some sissy choir, but this is a heavenly army, and they're standing there lighting up the sky, and uh, they're with the angel, and they are praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. And when the angels went away from them, Uh, into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened. I love the way the kids say it. One kid says, hey, we should go check that out. And the other, the second kid says, yeah, I don't think that's a bad idea. And then they all kind of agree. And that's what the shepherds do, which the Lord has made known to us. Verse 16. So they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph, comma, and the baby lying in a manger. They weren't all three lying there, just the baby. Verse 17. And when they saw it, They made known the saying that he had told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Verse 20, the last one. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Now, there's so many things I would love to just tell us this morning. We would be here forever. So I'm just going to tell you four things that I think are really apparent in this story. And we even put them up on the screen. So Renee, if you'll go to that first one for me. The first thing that I see here is that God doesn't need us to be great because he is great. God doesn't need you and I to be great because he is great. God made people from the dust. You know, when Samuel Adams died in 1803, I love this. If you read the will of Samuel Adams, it says this. The first two things he deeds away, he says... Uh, I deed my soul to God in heaven because he made me for eternity, and to eternity I am going. And I deed my body to the dirt because from the dust I was made, and to the dust 
I am returning. And then he began to leave the little bit of things that he had accumulated in this life. He understood that God was great and that he was only from the dust. Look at the characters in the story. You got Joseph, carpenter, Mary, teenage Jewish girl, shepherds, invisible to society. This is the lowest of the low kind of a job in in society uh, of first century Palestine. And so these are just regular characters, totally forgettable, often marginalized, workers who watch sheep, kill predators, and no one ever saw them. God, I love the, I don't know how many of you grew up like asking the blessing at your house around the table as kids. We were made to pray that same prayer every meal. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him. For our food. By his hands we all are fed. Give us, Lord, our daily bread. The first thing that was instilled in us was that God was great and on the second level that we were not. I love it. Uh, there's like this snarky sort of spiritual snot, snotty snob in me that when somebody's like, JD, why don't you bless the food? I'm like, you don't want me blessing your food. Like, you'll probably get E. coli, but I will ask God to bless this food because I, I know. That God is great. And I'm not great. We're not great. Only God is great. And so uh, we begin with this idea and this story that God is great. So we don't have to be great. The shepherds didn't have to be great. Mary and Joseph didn't have to be great. Because the baby in the manger is great. The second thing I think we see in this story is that God is good because we are not good. If you'll go to that slide, Renee, God is good. He doesn't need us to be good because he is good. We so often make these people into saints. Hey, you know, we've all seen like the artwork where their heads are glowing. You know what I mean? Like we've made them so good and so saintly, these shepherds and Mary and Joseph. And the truth is the good person in the story is Jesus and not people. We are not good. But the angel comes and he says, I've got good news for you. The gospel is good news. And here's the gospel in this story. The Savior is born. For hundreds and hundreds of years, the Jewish people had been waiting for this Savior, this Messiah, the Lord, to come and to rescue his people. And the good news that the angel says, the first thing in his message is, hey, I got great news for you. The Savior is born, who is Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. He's born. He's on the scene. People have been waiting for hundreds of years. Isaiah prophesied about it 700 years ago, and now he's here. That's the gospel. The good news is the Savior is born. The good news is that the Savior is a humble, helpless baby in a humble stable. If God were some um, all-powerful king, which he is, but if he appeared that way, if he came to earth that way, we'd be scared to death and may not even feel on some level like we could even approach him. But he comes as a baby. And despite our brokenness and our lack of goodness, we can totally approach him. God is totally approachable through Jesus. And then the third thing that we see the, the, um, the angels say is that the Savior is for everybody. The Savior is for everybody. He says, this is great news for all the people. He says, this gospel, this good news is for Charlestown. This gospel is for West Roxbury. This gospel is for South Boston. It's for Roxbury. It's for Dorchester. It's for Mattapan. It's for the Back Bay. It's for the North End. The gospel is for all the communities outside greater Boston. The gospel is for all the people in all the states. It's for Alabama and Massachusetts and Montana and Alaska and Hawaii and even California. It's for all of the states. See what I did there? Um, Yep. And uh, it's for all the countries. 
It's for all the countries. It's for everybody. The gospel is for those people in the island off Myanmar who had a guy who didn't have a good plan, who sort of made his way onto their island to try to share the gospel with them. Bad plan. He lost his life. But the gospel is for those people on that island. The gospel is for America and Canada and Guatemala and Honduras and Burkina Faso and the Netherlands and for Russia and for every place where there are people. The gospel, the good news of Jesus is for everybody. And so we don't have to be good because God is good and he has good news. And here's why he was born. Here's why Jesus was born because we're not good. When I was growing up in the, uh, in the 80s and uh, late 90s and kind of heard the gospel for the first time in the mid to late 80s, people would draw this canyon. And I've even drawn this for some of you before. Uh, there'd be a huge chasm and people are on this side and God is on this side. And there's this gap between us and God because God's holy and we're not. God is good and we're not. And we try to cross the canyon in a thousand different ways, be it religion or good efforts or trying to go to church or doing religious things or having good intentions or whatever it may be. But we cannot cross the canyon. We can't get our way to God no matter how hard we try. And so God steps into the chasm and becomes a man. Jesus and dies on the cross and rises again from the dead because we aren't good and we miss the mark. We can't get to God. Religion says, do, man, do this. Don't do that. Do these things. And, and faith in Jesus, the good news, the gospel is that God has done for us. We, don't, we can't add anything to this. I can't take from it. God is good, uh, so I don't have to be good. God's not looking at me thinking, J.D., if you can just get your junk together a little more, then we're going to be okay. If you could just stop getting so angry, or if you could just stop eating so much sweets, or if you could just pray and not like sort of nod off or your thoughts run off in a thousand different directions, then we're going to be all right. You add that to this and we're going to have something here. No, God knows I'm not good. And so he's good. I don't have to be Good. The third thing that we see in this story, uh, if Renee, if you'll go to that third slide, God doesn't need us to have a plan because he has a plan. I don't have to have a plan for salvation. God has a plan. God's plan is rooted in history. It's rooted in time. It's rooted in place. People will say, well, you know, there are all kinds of uh, narratives like the birth of Jesus where gods became humans. That's just simply not true at all. Like that's not even that's, that's just bad understanding of, of history and of other cultures from 2,000 years ago. This is a unique plan. And one thing that sets the Bible and the gospel, and particularly the gospel of Luke, apart and his uh, sort of companion book of Acts, Luke was a doctor. So he's extremely interested in details. We want our doctors to be good with the details, don't we? We want them to know, like we want them to get that exactly right. Luke's a doctor, and so he's naming numbers, he's counting, he's naming specific uh, ailments that people have that Jesus is healing them of. He's naming all these things, and he's very into city names and, uh, and things that are happening in the government and sort of in the larger Roman world. And so he talks about a guy named Quirinius and Caesar Augustus and the Roman Empire and in first century Palestine and Galilee and Judea and Bethlehem. And then I love it. I think it says it in the King James uh, translation. It says, in the fullness of time. Because God has this plan that is being executed in real time and in real place in history. But all of the things, all, everything had to come to the fullness of time. 
God's been preparing for hundreds of years and people have been waiting. And if you are reading your Bible, one thing that we often don't see uh, when we look at time is from the last book of the Old Testament of Malachi to the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, when Jesus is born, is a 500-year gap where God is basically silent and there's no scripture written and they're waiting and they're thinking, God, have you forgotten us? Have you abandoned the plan? What are you doing? When are, when are you coming? When are you going to rescue us? We keep being conquered by foreign countries and, and our faith is being diluted and watered down. When are you going to show up into our lives? And the Bible says in the fullness of time, when, it was, when God's timing was ripe on the tree, God sent his son at the, just the right time. God has a plan for all humanity. Further, God has a plan for today. Friday night, I ate the chart house for the first time. It was really nice. I had the privilege of eating there with about 20 uh, pastors in neighborhoods around Boston, similar to ours, who have moved here in the last three years to start churches. One of the guys uh, just moved here. It's a Cambodian gentleman who's moved here to start a Cambodian church in Lynn. Man, God is at work in this city. God has a plan for Boston and wants to do incredible things. Yesterday, we had the privilege of helping with the Charlestown family Christmas celebration and Carla was such a godsend, face painting, and Lana and Lane volunteered. You did cards, is that what you did, cards? And you ran the photo booth along with Nick. It was so fun. I, t- I took a sort of a, a panoramic video at one point of all the nations. Literally, I was watching as Muslim kids came up and got Christmas presents. And as Spanish kids and as Asian kids and as Irish-American kids and as African-American kids all came and received gifts. And I thought, man, God, look what you're up to in this neighborhood. Three of the four organizations that put that event together were churches or parachurch ministries. God's at work in this neighborhood. God has a plan for what he's doing in Boston. And and it seems like it's the fullness of time right now. And he has a plan for what he's doing in Charlestown. and, And we get to be part of that plan. We don't have to create the plan. We jump in on it. So here at our church, if this is your first time, our sort of thing that we say, I think it's even on the very top of our website, is bringing Charlestown together around the gospel. See, I think in our divided world where everybody hates half the people running around and everybody's got to post something negative on Twitter or you, like we just have to, if we disagree, say, oh, well, clearly you need to die because we, don't disagree, we disagree on something. I think the gospel is the one thing that can bring people together despite race, socioeconomics, where we live, where we're from, how we vote. Uh, all of those things. The gospel is the thing that can bring, one and bring people together. And that's our plan in Charlestown. We want to be a church that exists to bring Charlestown together around the good news, God's plan for our neighborhood. We don't have to create a plan. We jump in on his plan. And then the last thing, the fourth thing, God doesn't need us to do for him. God doesn't need us to do for him. Renee, if you'll put this last one up, because he will do for us and he will do in us and he will do through us. So many times in my life, maybe you've said this before, I only have stopped saying this in the last three years. I would so often say, man, I just want to do something big for God. You ever thought that? Have you ever said that? Man, I just want to do something for God. There's nothing wrong with saying that. I've said that for most of my adult life. But what I'm learning is we don't have to do anything for God. The shepherds didn't have to do anything for God. God was doing for them. The wise men didn't have to do anything for God. God was doing for them. He could have used the angels to literally like simulcast this news to the world. 
but he wanted to do something for these shepherds. Uh, have you ever heard of that book, um, The Shack? Has anybody ever heard of that? The guy who wrote that book, his name's, I think, William Young, if I'm remembering right. He uh, did a, he was working on a project with a friend of mine, a guy named Jared Emerson, who's a really talented artist. They were, they were on this, they were at this event uh, together, both sort of uh, Mr. Young was giving a talk about his book and my friend was performing. He's a performance painter who's a Christian. And my buddy was talking about um, how he wanted to do something for God. He, just wanted, he said, I just wanted to, he told Mr. Young, I just want to be used by God. And William Young says, well, that's a weird idea because nobody wants to be used. Who likes feeling used? Why would we want to be used by God? He was like, Jared, can I encourage you rather than think about being used by God, to think about God working in you and God working on you and God working for you and God working through you. The beauty of the gospel is we don't have to be used by God. He's not interested in using us. He wants to do something in us and with us and for us and through us and on us, not us do something for him. God doesn't need to use us or have us do anything for him. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. So it's not a lot that we bring to the table. You know what I mean? It's not a lot that we have to offer there. That's like going to, like, you know, an adult football. Like, have you ever, if you're, for those who are parents, have you ever, like, done an art project or played a sport with your kids? Like, you kind of have to stoop down to play the sport. Like, and, and I've played games where it's mostly adults, but my boys want to get in there and play. And, you know, we'll kind of soft toss the ball to them or we'll let them miss a dozen shots and then they'll finally get it right. And they're so proud. Like, they're flexing and, you know, dabbing. And now it's like all these other Fortnite dances. And they think they have done something. But the truth is... All the adults sort of bent the game so that they could succeed and we would celebrate with them. That's what God does for us. That's the gospel. We don't do anything for God. I'm not bringing anything to that game called faith and you're not either. But God will do something in us and God will work on us. And that's the story. God will work through us and God will work for us and God will work with us if we will let him, if we will just Come and let him. So what does God need? I think this is, this is it. Um, what does God need from us? God needs a response. There are three people, three basic groups of people who are around Bethlehem that night. The first group is people who never hear or see uh, or have any sense that God has just been born in their neighborhood. They're just busy. I'm going to get this census done. I'm ready to get back to my town. I just want to, I got work to do. I got my kids screaming over here in the corner of this hotel. I need them to be quiet. I need to get back to work. I got to get back to my routine. And they're totally oblivious to the fact that God's been born. So often, like we get so busy and we get so distracted and we get so comfortable that we totally miss that God's at work around us. So the first way that we can respond is just fly right past us. Just the gospel just flies right over us, right by us. The second one, and this is the amazing one, because I don't think I saw this until I was an adult. At the end of the story, it says the angels went away, the shepherds go and see baby Jesus, and then they leave and they start telling everybody, it says, and the people wondered at what they heard. They wondered at what they heard. Now, I don't know, I don't think it's like wondering like, hmm, I wonder what they mean. It's, a, it's an amazement that doesn't lead to anything. They're like, oh, well, that's really cool news. And then they just kind of go on about their lives. And so they hear, they wonder, but they don't act 
on it. And man, so often that can become us in church. I remember uh, when I was probably 20 years ago, there was a song, a Christian song, and it said this. It said, my Sunday resolutions become Monday rationales. The things that I resolve to become and believe and do and repent of in faith on Sunday so often in the hustle and bustle of life just become rationalizing on Monday and just just goes right on. I go right on about my business. I'm, I'm, I'm busy uh, and it's easy to do. We may hear all this stuff. We may sing. We may watch. We may chuckle at that video. We may sense, and I hope you don't today, sometimes we come to church and we feel this sense of guilt. Uh, I hope more what you feel is a sense of conviction or compelling, but we may feel something, but we may not do much with us. And if that's you, I'd venture to say it's because four things have happened. One, you haven't realized how great God is. Two, you haven't realized how good God is. Three, you haven't realized how big his plan is. And four, you haven't fully realized all he's done for you and wants to do in you and through you and on you and with you. Because I think when we realize how great and good God is, how good his plan is, how thorough and beautiful and how it's being working itself out right now, and then we realize that he is inviting us into that plan. For me, I sit and I think, man, that's incredible. That's incredible. Last Sunday, for the first time ever, we, there were more than 30 people here uh, with no, with no like, outside teams propping up our crowd. And I got home, and I told Nat, I was like, man, look what God's doing. Look what God's doing. This is amazing. We couldn't do that. I can't do this. I cannot. I, I literally believe if I stood out on the corner uh, of most of the corners of this neighborhood and handed out $100 bills and said, hey, will you come to church for 100 bucks?" Uh, it's, this is one of those fun neighborhoods where people still would be like, no thanks, pass. So that God is growing people and people's hearts and lives are changing is only him. It's only him, man. We can't do that. But he invites us in if we just pay attention and want to be part of it and get beyond the wonder. If, if you tend to just wonder but not follow through, I would encourage you to look at how great God is, how good he is, and how sinful and not good you are, how solid his plan is, and how little we bring to the table, despite thinking we will do for him. Many heard it and wondered and were amazed, but didn't do anything. They did nothing with it, and the word kind of just gets choked out. But the third group, some people responded. Some people responded. The shepherds realized God uh, should not be choosing them, and angels should not be delivering the message of a king's birth to them. But they received the good news, they made a good move, and they became the first evangelists preaching the good news. They didn't have to, but they couldn't help but speak um, about God choosing them and being invited into his plan. This is not in the notes, but I remember being a kid and not getting picked for sports. I was, as, I was husky. I don't know if any of you know what that means. That's the, that's the politically correct word from the 80s for chubby kids. And so I didn't get picked for some of the sports teams. But, man, when I would get picked not last on the kickball team, whoever the guy was who, or girl who was who picked me to be not last was going to be like my friend for life. Greatest friend in the universe. I remember um, this guy, Chad McDaniel, in our church. He would never pick up teams like, okay, I got Mark, I got Lane, I got Marcy. He would always go with the other captain. They would come over here to the side, and they would quietly pick up teams. And then they would come over and announce out of order who they had picked so that nobody ever felt not picked. I want to tell you, God's picked you. He's picked you. And you're his first pick. 
if you'll just join him in what he's doing, if you'll respond to who he is and what he's done. Christina Rossetti in her uh, Christmas Carol written in 1872 called In the Bleak Midwinter, it ends like this. She says, what can I give him poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him? I give him my heart. That's all God wants. He just wants you. Merry Christmas. Man, God is good. All he wants is you. We don't have to bring anything to it. Let me pray for us.